Jaron Cacophony tells you you're once again listening to the Power of Three podcast, that special Doctor Who podcast without portfolio that sometimes does things three at a time, but not so much these days. But this month, because it's Doctor Who's 60th anniversary, we've been celebrating most of the time by doing a different book every day. For the first couple of weeks, it was a different Doctor every day. But because David Tennant is back as the Doctor, we're celebrating some of his books at the moment from the first time round when he was a Doctor, when he was the 10th Doctor, or as Kenny would argue, the 12th, but let's not go that way. I'm David Steele, welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Joining me today is my co-conspirator and friend of many years. It's that Kenny Smith. Say hello, Kenny Smith. Hello, Kenny Smith. Uh, Hello, David Steele. Hello, listeners. How are you all? We hope you're well this Wednesday, the 22nd of November, one day away from the big day. Gosh. Wednesday, the 22nd, I'm recording this episode on Monday the 20th. So it now, at the moment, has the record for episodes recorded closest to to transmission, taking that crown, if you like, away from the Slovene excursion the other day. So, Kenny, which book are we talking about today? Well, Dave, as you know, I do quite enjoy listening to Doctor Who book podcasts, and I was recently listening to the all-new adventures of the Doctor Who book club, and a few months ago, they were discussing The Ghosts of India, which is a Tenth Doctor and Donna book, and I thought, oh my goodness, that's really good fun. I remembered it and had fond memories of it and thought that should maybe be the Doctor and Donna book that we look at when it comes to yes. doing it. Because I think it was, I think it's right that we should do a Doctor and Donna book since we're about to get more Doctor and Donna. So this one seemed appropriate. Absolutely, because Absolutely, as we all know, um, it's not just DT that's back. CT is back as well. So yes, the Ghost of India. Kenny, would you like to would you like to read the back cover blurb or do you want me to do it? Why didn't you do it? Because you, you, you've got the habit of this and I'll do the review later. <laughs> India in 1947 is a country in the grip of chaos, a country torn apart by internal strife. When the Doctor and Donna arrive in Calcutta, they are instantly swept up in violent events. Barely escaping with their lives, they discover that the city is rife with tales of half-made men who roam the streets at night and steal people away. These creatures, it's said, are as white as salt and of only shadows where their eyes should be. With help from India's great spiritual leader, Mohandas Mahatma Gandhi, the Doctor and Donna set out to investigate these rumours. What is the real truth behind the half-made men? Why is Gandhi's role in history under threat? Has an ancient, all-powerful god of destruction really come back to wreak his vengeance upon the earth? Featuring the Doctor and Donna as played by DT and CT in the hit series from BBC TV. So, had you read this one when it first came out? I did. I enjoyed it. I remember having just happy thoughts about it because I remember the cover looked fantastic and it was one that the bizarre thing was coming back and reading it again was that I'd remembered things that are not in this book. So there was an awful lot in this here that surprised me. I mean, I right. just, I'm sure that I remembered trips to market and things like that and the doctor taking Donna shopping at it and completely wrong and the doctor and Donna having a meal completely wrong as obviously the restaurant that he goes to take her to has gone and it's bizarre the things that you think are in this and aren't it's interesting i in all in all honesty listeners with full transparency and hopefully no offense to to the author i found out of all the books that we've read and reread in preparation for this little series this is one that i kind of it took me the longest to read and that's mainly because i've been so busy at work the last week or so I found it a little slow moving to start with, a little uneven, some of the the, the plotting, um, the characterization. But it must be said, the, the last page, last couple of pages, the final page, kind of t- spin the whole thing on, its, on an axis for me and actually made me really 
appreciate the whole thing a lot more and what it was actually trying to say and what it was actually trying to do. Shall I come back to that? Or do you want, yeah, we no, talk come, about we'll, that? we'll come back to that. We'll come back to find out what yeah. it was that swung you. I mean, for me, yeah. I, I quite enjoyed the build-up here and the fact that there's that... You know, there's mutations taking place, you know, there's the mm. crocodile that comes in and it's all lumpy and then of course there's black lumps coming out of it and then also there's people who've got these extrusions coming from them as well and then of course there's the sightings of these half-made men, people going missing and it's all the classic elements that you would expect yeah. in a story and they're just yeah. and the fact they're slowly interspersed but a very interesting setting because I knew very little about the, you know what was happening in this in terms of history it's not an area that I'm particularly familiar with at all and I found that sort of the educational aspect was quite interesting because I did have a wee Google afterwards as to sure. what's going on I mean I don't I actually realised that I've never seen Gandhi that's what I thought I had and then I did, oh. I did really good, I watched some clips on YouTube and was like no I have not seen this film at all which is a bit right, of a shame because yeah. I know I'm going to have to now yeah, I mean, I haven't seen it either, but I remember when it was released, obviously, and, and, and Ben Kingsley, you know, became, being, you know, getting all the the rave reviews for it and stuff, and um, Gandhi entering the sort of the humorous cultural zeitgeist, etc., around about the time. Yeah, yeah, the setting was very was one thing I think was done very well. The obviously the scenes in the hospital and such like, and you know, the the little boy who lost his uncle and all that sort of stuff. Ranjit, I, I was a little dissatisfied with how Ranjit's. And Cameron were sort of um, wound up, given that they had so much to do. I'd like maybe a bit more of a friendlier farewell scene with between them and the Doctor and Donna. Then, but that, that's that's a tiny criticism. No, it's one of these things. That, it put me in mind of when um, the the Demons of the Punjab episode on TV, which was which was dealing with you know the, the partition, and but they didn't really tell you what the partition was. But when the Ms. Marvel Marvel TV series did it, they did explain it. So the history thing was very interesting. You got the sort of sense of. Of how horrible it must have been at the time, and I hadn't actually realized you know, what you're saying about the Gandhi movie. I hadn't realized that he'd actually died as long ago as he did. Obviously, at the end of this book, the Doctor explains to Donna in a similar way to when they talk about Charles Dickens. Doctor and Rose talk about Charles Dickens. That you know he, he's going to be dead within a year. And for some for some reason in my head, <laughs> I hadn't realized how long ago he died. You know, maybe because the film had been such a big deal when you and I were. Were kids, I kind of thought that maybe even then he was still alive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> or, I get that. Or he died recently. It was quite strange. It was good to kind of have that um, those historical cobwebs sort of swept away. I mean, what do they teach us in, in schools nowadays? They, the thing I found with this was at the end when the doctor. There's a few th points throughout when um, Donna compares the doctor and Gandhi to each other, and I think we're probably supposed to do that ourselves because. Um, Right at the end, when Noah talks about how Gandhi died and Donna, Donna, it reads, Donna sniffed, still tearful, she said, he reminds me a lot of you, you know. The doctor's face was sombre. He reached out and pulled the lever that would propel the TARDIS into the time vortex. Oh, he's far more forgiving than I'll ever be, he said. And that's how it finished. And it made me realise that we were supposed to have been focusing on the doctor and Gandhi and their similarities and differences all the way through. And I realised that sort of almost unconsciously I had been doing that so this final emphasis at the end really brought it into focus and I went you know actually I have without realising it probably got a lot more out of this than I thought so it was very interesting especially when you realise how there was points I was reading it and I sort of thought the Doctor's really quite arsy in this he's really quite a lot crabbier than he normally is and he seems a little more manic and 
I sort of realised that that's maybe because he was because Gandhi was making him do some thinking about himself, maybe, or mm-hmm. was holding up a mirror and the doctor was reflecting on, you know, maybe a few years ahead of it, but, you know, am I a good man? It was interesting. Donna was captured really well. There's a, I've, sacrilege, I've folded a couple of, a couple of corners. Um, oh. I was very amused at the bit on page 124 when Donna was having a conversation with Gandhi and, you know, the struggles of perfection and, and Donna saying one whiff of a Cadbury's whisper and I'd slip right off the pedestal. That made me laugh. <laughs> um, but Donna was caught very well. And it was like some of the other books, it was very easy to very easy to visualize, you know, with a with an unlimited budget and imagine, you know, the scenes of the the you know the titular ghosts turning up in the camp and grabbing people left, right and centre. Those scenes were terrifying because when they sort of explained how the non men are created basically by three or four other people being pulped and then these things you thought are all these people being captured with these monsters is this what's happening to them and you see about children being kidnapped and families being separated it was really oh it was really really quite unpleasant at points so it was quite good at spoilers the big happy ending when they managed to rescue everyone yeah when everybody's you know, gathered together in the cave and uh, you get Cameron meeting up with his own parents again and and yeah. uh, Cameron's dad sort of starting to warm to to realise that um, the people who he's been lording it over are actually, they're all just the same, they're all in the same boat, everybody's scared for themselves and, and their own families and he sort of gets that realisation, which is thankfully you know, something that um, people should be doing by realising that everybody else is, that we're all just the same, we're all still flesh and blood and we all have our families and things like that so that was quite that was quite nicely done it wasn't in your face it was quite subtly done it wasn't yeah. like a dramatic awakening it yeah. was just a slow emergence and things like that but i thought it was you know very yeah. interesting just to see the you know the attitudes which make for uncomfortable reading at times when you have yeah. uh, some of the characters opposing their sort of superiority over the native population Absolutely. just think it's horrible to read and given some you know, we only touched on this briefly i suppose i don't want to offend anyone would been appropriate but given some of the stuff that's going on in the world right now it's very pertinent a lot of the stuff about attitudes and considerations so it's very very interesting we've actually got an audiobook release of this one which was narrated by david troughton so Ah, do we have a, a quick excerpt from that okay suddenly the strange man who called himself the doctor had become very still His eyes blazed with such intensity that Sir Edgar had to look away. Without meeting the doctor's gaze, he mumbled, I have no idea what you're blathering about, sir. Then let me explain in very simple terms, said the doctor quietly. If we don't find the energy source, everyone will die. Everyone, not just the poor and the sick and the homeless, but you, Sir Edgar, and your wife and your children. For several seconds, no one spoke. Finally, Sir Edgar shuddered as if he had stepped from a fire-warmed room into the icy bleakness of a winter's night. How dare you enter my home and speak to me in this manner, he said. You're nothing but a a madman full of wild stories and and ridiculous ideas. The doctor stared at Sir Edgar and then said dismissively, Oh, you're just an idiot. He turned to Gandhi. Mohandas, will you help me? Gandhi was already nodding as though he had never doubted the truth of the doctor's words. I will call a meeting to address the people, he said, and I will ask them to listen to you. Thank you, the doctor said. Then he strode to the French windows and threw them open. Oi, 
Madonna! Doctor! she exclaimed gleefully, rising to her feet. Two sugars! he shouted, strolling across the lawn. A small figure raced to meet him. Aya, Ranjit, the doctor said. What you got there? Then he saw the Sonic. Oh, I've been looking for you, you little minx. Where did you get to? Breathlessly, Ranjit told his story. The doctor was almost at the table when he halted. Say that bit again. What bit? The bit about the half-made men. Patiently, Ranjit repeated his story. I bet he's got a trace on it, the doctor said. Who? asked Donna. Whoever's using Calcutta as a fuel dump. He's probably tuned in to the activation signal. So if I just turn it on... Risky, I suppose, but I save a lot of mucking about. He frowned, then nodded decisively. Yeah, why not? He who dares. Abruptly, he turned and ran back to the centre of the lawn. What are you doing now? Donna shouted. Just want to try something. Stand well back and keep the pot warm. The doctor held up the sonic and turned it on. Immediately, there was a silvery shimmer in the air, and suddenly he was surrounded by a quartet of chalk-white men with no eyes. Mary Campbell's hand flew to her mouth. Adelaide screamed. Gopal and the boys goggled in terror. Donna yelled, Doctor! and half rose from her seat. The doctor looked calmly around at the creatures as they closed in on him. Take me to your leader, he said. There was another shimmer, and a second later, the doctor and the four men had vanished. And thanks very much, David, for personally recording that and sending it to us. <laughs> yes, thank you. The other DT. So, with our little preamble out of the way, we're now going to hear from, well, Kenny's going to talk to Mr. Mark Morris. My name is Mark Morris, and I'm the author of A Doctor Who Ghosts of India. Fantastic. Mark, of course, you had experience of having previously written a new series novel, having done a couple of books for BBC prior to that with PDAs and an EDA. So how was it coming to this sort of new series speed and your quicker storytelling? Yeah, it, it was really exciting because obviously it was a very exciting time for Doctor Who. It had only been back, you know, a couple of years. And the first two books that I wrote, obviously, were, were during the kind of the wilderness years, if you like. So there was, a, there was a lot more kind of excitement around the David Tennant books, I'd say. It was far more of a, a kind of a, the whole population, you know. It was, I mean, when it came out, when the books came out, they were kind of, they went straight to number one on the children's, you know, bestseller lists. Whereas, obviously, the earlier ones, the, the, the um, you know, the, the Body Snatchers and Deep Blue were more really kind of for the fans. So however exciting it was to write those, it was incredibly exciting to do both Forever Autumn and Ghosts of India. You know, we, we were sent to the Bath Children's Literature Festival to do panels and the biggest hall and the room was absolutely packed out, standing room only. And it was a time when Doctor Who was just enormous again, you know, when David Tennant came back. And obviously it, it's, it stayed pretty big, but it's, it, I don't think it's ever kind of reached those heights again, like those early David Tennant days. So yeah, it was very exciting, and and just about yeah, just writing the the kind of the difference in style was kind of quite refreshing. I still think that maybe writing Forever Autumn was one of the most enjoyable writing experiences I've, I've had because it was just literally just telling the story, and it just felt as though it just had to be energy all the way through. You know, 
so there wasn't a lot of time for kind of reflection and things but it was just kind of trying to write the story in very very bold and energetic lines which was which was great fun for somebody who's ostensibly a horror writer how was it for you doing something that was you know primarily these books really were sort of more child friendly I don't find it too difficult to change because uh, for me Doctor Who kind of leads directly for me into my horror writing because Doctor Who was the very first thing that ever frightened me in any fictional term so you know it's, it's the kind of I remember the Patrick Troughton years and I remember watching vividly remember watching The Web of Fear when I was four and Fury from the Deep and the Ice Warriors and the Cybermen in the sewer you know in the invasion and those were the things that just kind of were seminal sort of influences for me and they terrified me almost tra- almost like traumatized me in a way which is it's strange looking back now when you watch those again and you think how kind of mild they are compared to a lot of the stuff we see now but but that sort of just led on to my love of scary things so for me going back to doctor who it's always like going back to the to the origins going back to the things that first frightened me if you like and I always try to make my Doctor, my Doctor Who books quite creepy and quite scary. I prefer to do those than, rather than doing kind of big science fiction, kind of space opera type stuff, I always much prefer the kind of the dark, creepy stories. Definitely comes across your, your love in there. So with this one, with Ghosts of India, do you recall being given a brief or were you able to submit a pitch for a sort of historical story with the Doctor and Donna? Don't recall being given a brief. It may have been, I mean, I think at the time they were trying to do one in the future, one in the past, and one in the present. It may have been something like that, but it was it was quite loose. So I think maybe, maybe I was given the, the kind of the past story. I honestly can't remember. I do know that from my own memory of it, I do remember thinking I want to write a story and set it somewhere in Earth's history, but somewhere where they will probably never be able to afford to go to film it. So I was trying to think of somewhere, you know, really exotic and obviously a, a very kind of rich sort of period in world history that also had a lot of conflict involved in it as well and was very, you know, lots and lots of stuff going on and maybe there were kind of, you know, different opinions on different sides and, the, and it was there was no black and white, it was all very grey. And obviously Doctor Who has done things like the World Wars and stuff before. I think I'd, I'd probably also quite recently watched Gandhi maybe, the film with Ben Kingsley and I and I read I know I read Gandhi's autobiography or biography or autobiography and found it really fascinating and so I think I just thought that that would be a perfect perfect you know sort of location for a Doctor Who story and I also really just loved the thought of Donna meeting Gandhi and how they would get on and I was already as soon as as soon as I thought of that I was already kind of forming conversations in my head of the two characters just the way they kind of sparked off each other and stuff so I think those were the main influences, yeah. Yeah, I'm saying you absolutely nail the Doctor and Donna perfectly. They're just, you can hear Catherine Tate sing every single line and, and David Tennant sort of that mock affrontery when Donna's insulting him and just that, oh. But it's, it's just that wonderful brotherly, sisterly relationship that they have and it is perfect. It absolutely sings on the page. Oh, thank you. Well, they're great to write. They're, they're just fantastic. I mean, obviously, you know, thanks to the to the writers, the TV writers who brought them to life as well, and to the actors themselves. I mean, they just leap leap straight into your into your mind, almost you know, completely fully formed. So it's quite. I found them really easy to write for, both in both books. I was never kind of struggling to come up with 
the sort of conversations or how would someone how would they respond to this it was always like very very instinctive I was almost sort of you know having to write really really quickly to get the words down how much research did you have to do into the period you mentioned obviously you read the biography stroke yeah. autobiography of Gandhi and we've got it's pretty much an unheralded celebrity historical this one yeah yeah it is an awful lot 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 of research and just looking back through I was just looking back through the book briefly now and flicking through it and um, looking through a synopsis online and it just reminded me of how much research I actually did do it's not just about not just about Gandhi and his personality and his life and and you know everything that he was involved with it was um, obviously it was the 1947 you know the the British um, Empire um, the Raj which you know and all that kind of thing all the conflict in India the different religions that were there that were all there was lots of infighting how the country was divided up so a lot of historical stuff but also just a lot of stuff about uh, about the flora and fauna the food the culture you know all that kind of thing so I noticed I've I noticed when I was reading it that you know it, it talks about particular a particular temple in being in a certain style and talking about the trees and talking about the different wildlife that was around and all that kind of thing and uh, it just reminded me of how much I actually did do there was a there was a lot of research considering that it's a you know it's a 30,000 word children's book or whatever I did probably probably took me more time to do the research than it did to write the book in terms of it being a children's book as you just mentioned I'd assume that the character Ranjit was put in there as being effectively an audience identification figure that's sort of a younger hero in the book that the readers could relate to maybe I honestly can't remember I think there's uh, Ranjit and his friend Cameron isn't there yes yes and I think I, I think that was in there to sort of show that because there's this thing with children where they don't kind of things like religion and skin colour and all those kind of things and culture don't really matter to them you know and I think that, that they were in there just to kind of just show the friendship between two human beings and all that other stuff just didn't matter so I think that was kind of some reason why that was in there I also remember that I had a young fan called Cameron Campbell whose mum asked me if I could have a character in one of my books that had his name so that's why he was called Cameron Campbell I think he's now in his 20s or something but he was just a kid at the time <laughs> I know it's scary so yeah I think I mean I can't remember thinking oh I need a child in this because obviously you know Doctor Who appeals to kids anyway. It appealed to me when I was a kid from the age of four, and I never thought, it never occurred to me that it had to have a child in it for me to identify with it. In fact, most Doctor Who stories don't have children in them. So I don't think that, I don't think that was a real, a real conscious thought to do that. But yeah, it was a long time ago, so I honestly can't remember. But I just think it was just literally to have those two characters that were of different races, different cultures, but were just great friends. Yeah. Now, the thing, I love the fact that we've got the creatures, the, the alien Gellum invented there, um, and I love the description of him here. It was man-shaped, certainly, but its skin was a ghastly fish belly white and perfectly smooth and hairless like polished marble. Even more unsettling was its face, which had the hideously blank expression of a death mask. It was not until the creature was just a few yards away, however, that Dacre became aware of the most horrifying detail of all. The thing had no eyes. Where its eyes should have been, there was nothing but smooth hollows filled with grey shadow. That is just brilliant. I mean, it's the fish belly. 
it's just that wonderfully evocative ugh, shudder feel to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Where did the I idea for, the, that, for them come from? You know, I think, I, I think it's two things. I think partly they came from some of my research where I was reading about Indian folklore and stuff, and I'm sure I came across this reference to half-made men, which really s- struck with me. And I think, I can't, I, I can't remember now, but I think they were supposed to be some kind of interim, interim form between life and death or something. I can't remember what it was. Um, somebody who's more into, into Indian culture and folklore will probably be able to fill in the gaps there. But I do remember coming across that phrase, half-made men, and really, really loving that phrase. And then they kind of came from that. And I think the other thing that that came from as well was there's an old ghost story which was made into a TV adaptation by Charles Dickens called The Signalman. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's, yes. a, there's a figure. Yeah, there's a figure standing by the tunnel. There's a, a tragedy that happens in a in a train tunnel, and there's a figure standing by the tunnel, and he has his hand over his face for most of it, and it stars Denim Elliot. And at one point, it reveals this this spectre, if you like, and he moves his hand away from his face, and he just has this kind of white, completely white face with blank eyes and a, a wide open mouth and it's really eerie really creepy iconic image from that era from the 70s it was when they did a ghost story every christmas and i think the a part of the idea probably came just from that image because that I, I saw that you know again as a kid and it was one of those things that kind of stuck with me and it was something i'd always found eerie and always kind of wanted to use in some way I did love the fact that the Gellum need five human beings to create one of them, and it was, yeah. um, and that was a horrible thought. We're, and we've got uh, you know with the with uh, Darak Seven up to his mischief, and of course trying to deceive the Doctor and Donna with his. Yeah. And that was a really good because I never saw that twist coming first time around. And when I reread it, I did remember it, but it was only literally yeah. when I was, and it was literally at the last second it popped into my head. So it's nice to have that little unexpected uh-huh. move. Yeah, it's, to be honest, I, don't, I only remember that when I read the synopsis online. I'd completely forgotten about all that kind of, all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's again, the, Gal- I, the things like the Gallon Warriors and the, because he's a kind of a weed creature, isn't he? Yep. And, um, that he, that I thought, from what I remember, he's kind of fused into the, as though it's like a kind of life support system or something, or an extension of his physicality. I can't quite remember. And a lot of that, again, a lot of that came from kind of Indian folklore types. So, so a lot of the names and things, I wanted them to sound quite Indian. I wanted them to be able to fit in with the whole kind of, you know, the rest of the book with the, with the, with the names of the Indians, the names of the Indian places, all that kind of thing. And I wanted them almost to feel as though they could be part of kind of some kind of Indian folklore or an extension of Indian folklore. Obviously, you know, you always when you're writing a Doctor Who monster, you were always trying to fit it into the to the scenario. If you have something that's like like when I wrote my you know when I wrote Forever Autumn, you know, I wanted to set it in a in a small American town, Halloween weekend, and have all the iconic Halloween sort of symbols and images and things in there. And so I invented creatures that looked like as though they had kind of giant evil pumpkin heads that kind of floated around and as though they could almost be Halloween decorations themselves, you know. And so when, you know, when you're writing a book like that, you wouldn't, you wouldn't write that, you wouldn't build up that kind of atmosphere and then just have it being invaded by Cybermen or huge robots or whatever. You're always trying to fit it in with, with the kind of atmosphere. 
you know, they do it on the TV as well, obviously, with things like the snowmen, you know, so they have the, the Victorian London set at Christmas and then you have these evil snowmen and all that kind of thing. So it's always it's always just trying to make it like a, a complete entity in itself so that the, the, the creatures fit in with the scenario, if you like. Yeah. Uh, I mean, sometimes, obviously, it's nice to have a contrast. Obviously, you do have the story with the Cybermen invading Victorian London, which is a nice contrast, but... But yeah, it's um, so. So with the with the just going back to Ghost of Minion. So with the um, the Gallon Warriors and the weed creature or the weed creatures, I, I wanted it to kind of feel as though it was kind of part of that whole scenario. I'd imagine that capturing Gandhi would have been one of the more difficult things to do because I did wonder with you know with some of his quotes were they things were they direct quotes or had you written them in a Gandhi style. Some of them may be. I think it's just what you just have to do is entrench yourself as much as you can in the character. So, you know, I mean, I know watching the movie isn't watching the actual person, but I watch the movie. I try to watch as much footage of Gandhi himself as I possibly could. I look, just looked on YouTube for as many, like, uh, news news clips and all that kind of thing. Just read as, read as much as I could about him as well. And, and just you just get completely immersed in the person. And then if you do it, I think if you do it enough, then they, their voice starts to come through a little bit. I remember I didn't find him hugely difficult to write. I almost felt as though I knew him well enough when I was writing the book that he kind of came alive in my head and hopefully on the page as well. But I've done that a few times. I've done a few different, I've written a few different things where they've included real characters. I, I, I wrote a short story about, uh, which was a mashup thing where you had to have a, a real person involved in some kind of supernatural experience and i did a story about sid vicious in when the sex pistols did their final tour they did lots of because they wanted to be controversial and and confrontational they did lots and lots of gigs in the deep south where they knew people would be outraged by them and they did gigs in new orleans and things like that so i did i did a story about sid vicious in new orleans and it's all told from his point of view and again, it, I found it quite, once I got into it, I found it quite easy to write. I found I could picture the character in my head very clearly saying the words. And that, that's just all you can do is just, you just have to completely immerse yourself in the character. Yeah. There's also some bits in here that sort of, when you have the, the British characters as, the, as they're withdrawing from India, yeah. Some some horrible views that are opposing, and uh, you just think this is. You can imagine this is the sort of thing that would have been said at the time, and it's and it's horrible to think that people look down, you know, in our, in our thankfully mostly progressive society today. And again, yeah. imagine the things that that are uncomfortable for you to write, but it is sort of addressing a truth and that things how things were. Yeah, it is. It is uncomfortable, but it's also. I think I had Donna mainly as the kind of the character who would. She would come forward straight away and say, "Oh, you know, that's that's wrong. You can't say that." So the, I think there's a scene where, I mean, for, again, it's a long time since I wrote it, but I think there's a scene where Don is having tea in the garden or something, and is it Ranjit turns up, and he and he's been, I think he's been driven away by by one of the servants earlier. He's had a, a rock thrown at his head or something, so he turns up maybe in a like with a bandage around his head. And they're all outraged that Donna invites him over, invites him to come and sit with them and have tea with them and sit on the chairs with them and things. And it's just that, um, you know, that kind of institutionalised bigotry that was around at the time that I just wanted to sort of draw attention to and say, you know, these are people who are not, a lot of them are not outwardly racist, but at the same time, they still hold 
you know, they still regard the population of the country that basically they've invaded, if you like, and taken over. They still regard them as like inferior beings. And they might be polite to them, they might have them as servants and all that kind of thing, but it's not the same as Donis, you know, inviting people over and saying, oh, just come and sit with us and chat with us and that kind of thing. So I really wanted to get over that that more modern viewpoint, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I particularly enjoyed on page 47 when Donna says, my cousin Janice is married to a Sikh. In Calcutta, asked Ronnie. No, Basildon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. I just love that. It's just totally <laughs> deflating the pomposity and just and just showing the normalisation of things now, which is great. That's what Doctor Who's all about, though, isn't it? It's all about how we're all the same. We're all just people, you know. We're all just, you know, whether you're an alien race, whether you're a green lizard, whatever, you know, you should always just treat people the same. Exactly. And that's what I was going to say. It's wonderful that that came across. And the fact you've got Donna is just the perfect voice with which yeah. to do it because she's not somebody to hold back in her opinions and will make things known forcefully. You can just imagine Captain Tate doing the oi kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And just, yeah, yeah. it's great. So you, you must have enjoyed creating your own alien races as well, not just the Gellum, but the, the visitors from afar. The fact you've got the hunter and the hunted. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's always great fun. It's. It's always quite hard with Doctor Who coming up with new things, something that hasn't been done before, something that you know that's slightly different. Because whatever you come up with, even even with story ideas, whatever you come up with, you can always think, oh, that's actually that's a little bit like so and so. That's a little bit like this. That's a little bit like that. So you just have to try and come up. And it, but it does force you to try and come up with something completely new and original and. And you know, just something that maybe hasn't quite been seen before. I mean, there are, there are always going to be little echoes of of things. I mean, you know, they talk about now the Ood and the Sensorites being sort of a, like uh, cousins, if you like, like galactic cousins almost. Yeah. Um, whether that was intended in the first place, I'm not sure. But I think maybe people since then have probably pointed out, oh, the Ood are a bit like the Sensorites, aren't they? In some way, so they actually, uh, you know, they make that now a. Uh, uh, a plus rather than a minus by saying, yeah, yeah, they're actually quite close and, you know, their planets are quite close and, you know, the Oods come from Oods sphere, whereas the Sensorites came from Sense sphere and all that. And, and it kind of brings that whole lovely continuity together. So sometimes you can do it that way. Yeah. yeah that's probably going off the, off the topic a little bit there, but yeah. But no, it's nice. It's nice to be able to sort of tie everything up. So how do you look back on it? Is it one that uh, you, you enjoyed? I mean, you've got a glorious cover as well. Yeah, I did. I love that cover. Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the two books that I wrote, I wrote them like in consecutive years. So Forever Autumn and Ghosts of India. I loved writing both of them. Ghosts of India was harder because it was involved a lot of research. And obviously, as you know, when you're doing a, a pseudo historical, you're dealing with like a real person. So you want to do that person as much justice as you possibly can. So you have to be kind, quite careful how you write it. So it wasn't as it wasn't as, as freeing, I suppose, as Forever Autumn, in that you had to be very careful about how you dealt with certain historical subjects and and you know facts and figures and get all those right and you know all, the, all and all the stuff about the institutionalized racism, getting the voices just right. But no, I'm 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 really proud of that of that book. I think you know uh, I, I do still look back on it and think yeah I think I did a pretty good job on that one. And I think it was voted book, Doctor Who Book of the Year that year as well in Doctor Who magazine. So um, obviously a lot of people did enjoy it, which is great. Yeah. And of course, finally, you got a talking book version as well, although it wasn't a bridged one with David Trout and doing the reading. 
I did, yeah. I've always found it really hard listening to talking books of my own stuff, though. Because when you're writing it, you kind of, you're almost kind of reading it in your head, you know, as you're doing it. And it's almost as though when you're writing it, you're almost, it's almost as though you're kind of reading it to an audience in your head. So I've always found with every single talking book, no matter how good the narrator is, they always tell the story in a different way than I would tell it. And I find that, I find that quite, quite jarring to listen to a lot of the time, but it's just something you kind of have to get over. I suppose, you know, we all read in a different way, don't we? You know, and, and somebody reading the book to themselves will probably read it in a completely different way to, to how I would read it. So, um, it's not, I mean, it's nice, but it's, it's not an easy experience. I've had a few, a, a few of my Doctor Who things have been done as audio books. And I think each one I've listened to them once and kind of sat there, teeth clenched a little bit and then not read, you know, not listened to them again. <laughs> well, that's been brilliant. Mark, thank you so much for your time and sharing the experience of The Doctor and Donna. Okay, thank you. Nice to see you, Kenny. There we go. That was Mark. It was very kind of him there to take the time out and have a chat as he's a super busy author and he's been up in Edinburgh recently visiting his daughter so yeah he's a good fella good fella was Mark was Mark at Novel Experiences he was indeed he was indeed I'll have to check wait a minute I know what book I would have taken but I can't remember would it have been Deep Blue it would have been Deep Blue hang on um, and for the YouTube viewers, they, you can obviously see that Dave's just gone out of sight there to go around to his books around the corner. Yes, I'm sure you're okay. thoroughly enjoying this view of Dave's wall. It's fascinating. He has Doctor Book's poster there, one for the Divine Comedy. Have you seen the Divine Comedy listeners? I have. I saw them in Edinburgh about 99 when they were playing stuff on the new album and they didn't play anything that I recognised at all. It was all new album stuff, so slightly disappointing. Even when they did their encore, they didn't do any of the classics so here's the I'm back the Divine Comedy of the band I've actually seen live more than anyone else not including Friends bands and stuff obviously no I didn't get my copy of Deep Blue Sign so I'm guessing there must have been a conflict with one of the panels that I really wanted to watch versus the um, who was actually in the autograph room so Mark apologies maybe next time <laughs> absolutely but yes, Deep Blue. I'm going to save my thoughts on Deep Blue until maybe another episode one day but yes fascinating Ghost of India because uh, I say uh, I, you know, uneven I felt, but balanced out very much so all in. So it was an interesting one. Ken and I have been chatting. We're definitely going to do some more episodes on Doctor Who books in the future. But first, we're going to read some other books just to cleanse our palates a little bit. Because we've Absolutely. all we've been doing is Doctor Who books. But um, before we go any further, we can't forget that we have the contemporary review from Doctor Who magazine to talk about. Kenny, do you have that to hand? I do indeed. I do indeed. We've got Matt Michael's review, which appeared in DWM, oh gosh, five something. Uh, I didn't save the number because I just took a screenshot of the review. Um, it's going to be, well, issue 408, he reviews the audiobook, so it must be around about issue 400 odd. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Anyway, I've got it from DWM. So uh, let's have a quick look to see what Matt said. Gandhi is as much an idea as a character, a tiny, wrinkly, ancient man of peace dispensing nuggets of wisdom, Gandhi is written basically as Yoda, an entirely good, entirely lovable character, clapping with glee as he visits another world and fearlessly standing against the monsters without ever resorting to violence. Gandhi is presented as an ideal man, and the fact that he is infinitely more forgiving than the Doctor is entirely appropriate. 
Morris paints a convincing picture of post-independence India. Its chaos, exoticism and danger are compelling without evoking cliched Eastern mysticism. Equally, when the Doctor's friends are transported to an alien environment, there is a real sense of strangeness, while the plant-like aliens and their ghostly white-faced Gellum warriors are sinister. There are plenty of scary moments as the Gellums hunt down children or attack the refugee camps, while mutant snakes and crocodiles just add to the excitement. Even a climax that is too reliant on technobabble can't undermine this thrilling story. Well characterised and written, Ghosts of India is pretty much unputdownable. And that was all in one take, Dave. Blimey, not bad. Well done. And once again, <laughs> Matt and I have different views, so that's good. That's always yep. fun. Right, we're going to start winding up now. Listeners, tomorrow is November the 23rd, Doctor Who's 6th anniversary. I will encourage you to obviously to join Kenny and I here because we're doing something we haven't done in the podcast before. But I'd also mm-hmm. encourage you to check out tomorrow's episode of the Earth 2 podcast. We're celebrating the Doctor Who 6th anniversary over there as well. The very special episode featuring some guest vocals from, amongst others, our Kenny Smith. Hello. Um, but also top podcasters and Doctor Who fans, Ross Aitken, Brandon Peters, and the irredeemable Shag Matthews. So if you're so inclined, you'd like to join us over at the Earth 2 podcast tomorrow. But Kenny, do we want to tell everyone what we are going to be doing tomorrow? I think we probably should. So tomorrow, Kenny and I, in our Power of Three podcast first, we have recorded our first commentary for a Doctor Who story. So if you've got nothing else to do tomorrow, you can join us as we watch and rabbit all over the day of the Doctor, the Doctor Who 50th anniversary story. We do. And we had good fun doing that, even though it was like two weeks ago. Was it? Was it as yeah. long as that? It's two weeks ago, yeah. Listeners, there was one day a couple of weeks ago when, when Peter was around during the day and we recorded two episodes of the Earth 2 podcast, then Kenny was around in the evening and we recorded links for four episodes of Power 3. And oh my God, I was so sick of talking. Anyway, before we go, listeners, I'm going to encourage you to go to, if you have a copy of The Ghosts of India, I'm going to encourage you to go to page 167 and read about just under halfway down page 167 and see if you can spot the name of next Saturday's episode of Doctor Who. (laughs) Very good. Um, Kenny, Kenny, what are we playing out with today? I'd like to request Ghosts by Robbie Williams, but it's a bit rude and probably not appropriate to the the book. What's your choice to play us out with? Well, Dave, I'm glad you asked me that. I thought of something that's even quite appropriate on two levels because, number one, it's a song that's related to Ghosts, so I have gone for David Arnold and Nina Persson's theme tune for Randall and Hopkirk Deceased. And of course, appropriately enough, David Tennant featured in one of their episodes as well. I and yep, and Mark Gates and Gareth Roberts worked on that series also. So that's that's very interesting. I'll let you off for that. Listeners, thank you for joining us. Go and read Ghosts of India. It'll make you think in a good way. Given the state of the world right now, we need a few more people at like Mr. Gandhi. Anyway, we shall see you tomorrow. Take care. Peace out. Bye-bye.